If it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday, that means it's time for Lehigh Valley Discourse. And we begin with Perspectives by John Pierce. My guest this evening is an expert on the silk industry in the Lehigh Valley, which it turns out was very, very important in bygone years. It's Martha Capwell Fox. She's the historian for the National Canal Museum and the Delaware and Lehigh National Heritage Corridor. So, Martha, you've done much more in the Lehigh Valley than silk mills. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) I spent uh, 15 years on the staff at Rodale Press uh, writing about health and nutrition and food, and then I spent another six years as a freelance editor on their swimming magazine. So uh, I've had the, I've actually achieved both my lifetime dreams. As a child, I knew I wanted to work in magazines, which I did, and I also knew I wanted to work in museum, and I did. I am doing that, as a matter of fact, now. So I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. Well, we're delighted <laughs> to have you on, on our show this evening. Uh, Martha grew up in Catasauqua, where she still lives, and it sparked her interest in local and industrial history. So you've always been a history buff. I have. As well as wanting to do magazine work. Did you want to do um, writing for magazine or illustrations? No, I am not an illustrator (laughs) or a designer. No, I always wanted to be a writer. Okay. And that's what you've done, and as well as a speaker, because you have come to Perspectives tonight because I heard you give a talk on the silk mills in the Lehigh Valley at the Siegel Museum. Let's get a, give a shout out to the Historical Society in Northampton County. So Martha, researching and producing a video of historic Catasauqua photographs brought her into contact with the National Canal Museum and its historian, Lance Metz, in the 1980s. That's going back 40 years, Martha. Do you realize? <laughs> yes, I know. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Time marches on. <laughs> And Martha has been associated with the museum in various capacities since then. And she's the author of an industrial history of the D&L Corridor titled Geography, Geology, and Genius. Ooh, you've got alliteration in there. You're a writer. (laughs) And then the colon, and then how coal and canals ignited the American Industrial Revolution. Martha, tell us a little bit about your father and why he comes into this picture with the silk mills. Well, my father spent his entire adult working life in the silk industry. Um, It was sort of accidental how he came into it because uh, I don't know if it was right before or right after my parents were married in 1948. He had come out of the Navy uh, with a business degree from Dartmouth, courtesy of Uncle Sam. And he was offered two jobs, one with um, the company that is still in business around here, Everson Electric, and the other with a silk mill in Catasauqua that was called Cannes Fabrics. And since my mother is a native of Catasauqua, and her family goes way back in Catasauqua, and for a few other reasons, he opted for the silk business rather than the electrical business. And he stayed at Cairns until it closed in 1970, I believe that was, 69 or 70. And he had already begun a business of his own 
Cans made mostly dress goods, but my father also cultivated relationships with flag makers because they started to make a high-end synthetic called Bemberg, which is used for presidential flags and things like that. And they also made necktie silk for the menswear company Countess Mara. So those were the two accounts that my father was running from his own business. And then when he went out on his own for a while, he was contracting his actual production work out to several of the remaining mills in the Lehigh Valley, mostly in Allentown. And for a couple of summers, my brother and I spent our summers driving around, moving bobbins from one place to another, finished goods from one place to another, driving the finished goods to Patterson, where they went to a finisher. As teenagers? This was as teenagers. And I was in college by that point, and Stephen was shortly behind. And at one point or another, I believe all five of us, my four siblings, worked some machinery and things like that. We used to joke about how my father actually bought one of the mills where they were doing contract work when the owner wanted to retire, and that was the mill on Lumber Street in Allentown. And uh, we used to joke that my youngest sister perfectly fit the winding machinery because it was so old it actually dated to child labor era. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so my father continued the business until 1989. And it was a combination when he closed of the contraction of the textile industry, just in general in this country, and the change in the menswear business, actually, which impacted the necktie business. And also the fact that at 65 or however old he was when he shut down, he was one of the two youngest people in the place. And his workers were in their 70s, 80s, in a few cases in their 90s. And bit by bit by bit, they retired, passed on, got too sick to work. In fact, Dad's last weaver, a woman named Mary Stupitz, I have figured she must have been the last silk weaver in the Lehigh Valley. And Mary just died on the 1st of March at the age of 101. Oh, wow. Yes. I think you might have had a picture of her that you show when you give a lecture. Yes. When I worked at Rodale, I shared an office with a woman whose husband, whose name is Ken Bloom, had been a Time Life photographer. And when they moved to Allentown, Ken became really interested in the industry and the architecture. And when he found out that my dad had a silk mill, he asked for permission to go in and shoot wonderful black and white photographer. So I took him over to the mill and introduced him to dad and let them set it up. And Ken asked my father not to let the workers know that he was coming because he was used to shooting plein air, so to speak, as a news photographer almost he was. Dad was not keen on that idea. So the day before Ken was scheduled to come, he gathered the group together. And there were probably 30 people or so working for him at that point. And he told them what was going on and said that, you know, Ken was very experienced at not interfering with people in their day-to-day things. And that was what he wanted, was purely casual work-a-day They didn't want people looking at the camera, that sort of stuff. And all that worked out just fine, except that the day that Ken came, all the ladies had had their hair done. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from that, it was very normal. And consequently, we have one of the few photographic records of people actually working in a silk mill. There are many, many historic pictures of people standing stiff as boards with their arms folded in a lot of cases in front of unmoving machinery. 
and it doesn't tell you anything about how people worked and how they interacted with the machinery. In the case of Ken Bloom's pictures, we have people who are actually working. The photograph of Mary, for instance, it looks to me like she's either reloading a shuttle or she is fixing a broken thread in the loom. Because you can see her hands, but it's backlit, and so it's a little difficult to tell what's Much in her hands. Much more interesting to have the worker in action oh, yes. than standing there oh, with yes. a smile. Yeah, and it's a remarkable record, not only of silk workers at work, but also of the end of the era. Because those pictures were taken in 1982, if I remember correctly. So the 80s marked the end of the silk industry in the Lehigh Valley? Pretty much, yes. In the 70s, a bunch of mills closed, if I recall. No, I lived in Washington in the 70s. That's right. This would have been in the early 80s. I remember uh, going with my father over to the mill, which is still standing in Easton and is now the very chic Silkworks. It was then, after it stopped being Simone Silk, which is the Herman Simone built that complex in the 1890s. But by that point, it was down to one pretty large building, and it was an outfit called Onondaga. And when they went out of business, one of the things, with since my father's equipment pretty much dated to the 30s and 40s, and no one was still making any of that stuff, every time a mill went out of business, we scrambled around to get stuff, parts, bobbins. Nobody's making bobbins anymore. So I was in some pretty sad, cold, dark, abandoned silk mills, which I think is the other resonance I had in my life with Lance, because Lance took me to a lot of abandoned industrial sites, too. Well, the way you're describing it sounds as if there were many silk mills in the Lehigh Valley. There were. Most people don't realize this, except when I go out and do the talk, invariably, People come up to me and they say, oh, yes, my mother, my grandmother, my aunt, my sister, I worked in a mill because from about 1913 to 1930, not only was the United States the leading producer of silk goods in the world, which most people don't know about. I did not know. But yes, we surpassed France in 1913. And that same year, Pennsylvania surpassed Patterson, New Jersey, which was the center of silk production in not only all of New Jersey, but the whole United States in the production of silk goods. And so eastern Pennsylvania, basically everywhere east and south of the Susquehanna was the silk district of Pennsylvania. Little, little towns like Albertus, you know, and Bath. Had, they, they would had, have their own had, mill. Had silk mills, yes, yes. And mm. it's a little hard to compare apples and oranges, but there's some statistics that suggest that at some times there were more silk workers in Pennsylvania than there were like iron and steel workers. Oh. And the vast majority of the silk workers were women. Yes. Yeah. Why was that? Well, silk was the first industrial employer of women in Pennsylvania. I have to caveat that to a certain extent because in the exhibit that we have currently in the National Canal Museum, which is on women who worked in industry in the DNL corridor, pretty much simultaneous to the arrival of the silk industry was the cigar industry. And cigar making was also a huge employer of women. But the silk industry arrived first of all, up in the coal regions, because the manufacturers in Patterson saw a large body of available, cheap, 
docile, somewhat educated labor in the coal regions because the men all worked on the railroads or in the mines, basically. Yes, which would have been harder physically oh, to yes. work in the mines or oh, on the railroads, right. and so mm-hmm. better for men to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas the women would be indoors, so away from the weather. Yes, yeah. There were certain attractions to the silk industry in terms of you know safety and shelter and things like that. And by and large, it was a, a fairly safe environment, although it was probably ghastly hot in the summertime in those buildings between the machinery and and the, you know, lack of air conditioning, of course, in those days and gas lighting and things like that. The first part of the silk industry that moved into Pennsylvania in a big way was the part of silk production that's called throwing, which is the process of making raw silk, which is not pretty. (laughs) At all. Oh. Yeah, uh, crinkly and kind of sticky still from the silkworm glue that makes the cocoon. And also very, very fine. I mean, a strand of silk is, sm- is thinner than a human hair. And it's really not workable. So throwing is the process of winding and washing and twisting and winding and washing and twisting. And then the other thing about throwing is that a silk manufacturer needs to know from the time he purchases the raw silk what he's going to produce with it because the process of throwing also twists yarn in certain directions depending on if it's going to be used to make a warp or if it's going to be used for the fill, the weft, and what sort of fabric one is going to make and all that. Many, many, many considerations. And so the throwster who's running the business needs to know exactly what he has to tell his workers and those, to those, do. And person is called the throwster. A throwster. Huh? Yes, <laughs> I know. You wouldn't think that was a real word in English. Word, no, but, I think you but just made is. it up, Martha. No, I did no. not make it up. There were lots of throwing mills here in Bethlehem, actually. Time for us to take a break now. She gets so excited about these things, I have to bust in. My guest this evening is Martha Capwell-Fox, and she is talking to us about the silk industry in the Lehigh Valley. Spread the word about your business or organization to a well-informed audience. Become an underwriter with WDIY. Our lineup of NPR news and locally produced programs reaches thousands of engaged listeners in the Lehigh Valley and beyond. Underwriting on WDIY is an affordable and effective way to provide information about your product and services to people who care. To learn more about underwriting opportunities, 610-694-8100 or WDIY.org. My guest this evening is Martha Capwell-Fox, and she is talking to us about the silk industry in the Lehigh Valley. She's the historian for the National Canal Museum and the Delaware and Lehigh National Heritage Corridor. All right. So she's historian there, and she would have many tales to tell us of the Canal Museum, and we want folks to know about that. Let's break in a little bit here and say, how would a person go to the Canal Museum? The National Canal Museum is located in Humor Park in Easton. It is now findable online. We had some issues with that in in earlier years, but Google Maps and everything. The address is 2750 Humor Park Road, and the easiest way to describe where it is is off South 25th Street between Palmer Township and Wilson Borough, and easily accessible off 22. So folks can visit and maybe even meet Martha over there. 
Martha, we were talking about the silk mills and the fact that there were so many women working in them. We didn't mention children. Yes, there was child labor until about the 19-teens. Pennsylvania was really lagging behind New Jersey, and this was one of the crucial considerations that the silk manufacturers in Patterson and the surrounding areas had about moving operations to Pennsylvania because New Jersey was much stricter about leaving school and Pennsylvania had no laws at all requiring anyone to stay in school past the age of 12 in the 1880s and 90s. Eventually they raised it to 14 And anyone between 14 and 16 needed both school papers and written parental permission to work. They were terribly underpaid, even compared to women. And the women who were working, the jobs were generally kind of gender segregated. Um, At the top of the pay scale in terms of the labor force were loom mechanics, and those were always men. And loom mechanics were really important. I mean, they they kept it going. The loss of his loom mechanics was one of the things that basically led my father to close. And loom mechanics would repair? Repair, repair, Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, the, the, the constant motion and the impact, particularly on the weaving on looms, just jarred things constantly. In the silk mills, would we hear a whole lot of noise yes. from these machines? Yes. Would you have to stand right next to a person and scream to be understood? <laughs> you know, it's really funny because I never was around it enough, although I did work a couple of summers and the bulk of one year between Washington and Rodale in the mill. And I was in my 20s. I couldn't always hear people, and I always felt the need to shout. And everyone who worked there just talked in a normal tone of voice. (laughs) And, of course, by that point, there were OSHA regulations about noise. And the decibel level on the weave floor in particular was much higher than the allowable. So my father was required to have earmuffs available for people. And when Dad closed and we sadly emptied the mill, we took three packages of unopened earmuffs out of the safe because no one on the staff would ever, ever wear them. And they all steadfastly maintained, including my father, that this never caused hearing loss. <laughs> and the other thing that was interesting was there was a good handful of people on, the, on my dad's staff who spoke Pennsylvania Dutch to each other. Ah. And so that might have been something else that sort of helped them communicate. But, yeah, it was noisy. And in my dad's mill, which he bought already set up and equipped, I never understood why the looms were on the second floor. Because classically, good mill design put looms on a rock maple floor that was over dirt. So obviously on the ground floor, literally on the ground floor. That added more stability, and it didn't shake the building. It was too much of an operation in a very small building. They would have had to dismantle all the machinery and swap everything that was on the first floor to the second floor and vice versa, and it just was just not cost and time effective. A couple years ago, I had the incredible opportunity to visit a carpet maker, a a high-end oriental-style carpet maker in Langhorne. 
They are one of three left in the country, and I believe all three of them are in Pennsylvania. They were the biggest jacquard looms I had ever seen, because you can imagine an Oriental-style pattern carpet has many, many, many colors in it. But the minute we walked in, the looms sounded exactly like my dad's. I almost cried. How many feet across would a loom be? The ones in dad's loom were 60 inches wide. And when he closed, Bally Ribbon, which is still in business in Bally and has been a family-owned business since like 1920, and they are still in the textile manufacturing business of various sorts, they bought six of my dad's looms. And his mill manager, who at probably 55 at that point was the youngest person in the place, went to Bally then to work for them. And one of the first things they had him do was, was make the looms narrower because what they were producing at that point, and I don't think this is a matter of national security, they were producing the textile polymer that coated the tiles on the underside of the space shuttle. Oh. And that was what they were doing on my dad's looms. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Now, you were talking about the, should we say, hierarchy of the positions Mm. in the the mills. Yes. So... At the top of the pay scale were the loom mechanics. mechanics. Yes, and then the weavers. And weavers were paid basically by the pick, which is about an inch of production of silk. So it was sort of piecework, but a good weaver could get skilled enough to really get the loom running properly with no slowdowns or, or you know breaks and things and stuff like that. And most weavers were capable of running four to six looms. And that was always a two-gender position. There were many, many male weavers. Dad had four that I know of. There may have been some more earlier before I started to work in the mill for the patch of time that I did. Um, so there were, there were a lot of men. Um, and, and that is a real skill. That is, that is a, a real skill because you have to be able to watch so many things and, and then also keep an eye on, you know, several looms and then the the next and probably the equally skilled job and again more women probably than men but a lot of men did this job too is warping which is making the great big you know many many yards long set of it's it's a real large uh, 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 bobbin actually um, with huge steel ears at the end and um, that is what makes the, the warp, which is the part, that's, if, if you will, the, the horizontal part through the, through the loom. And that is also very, very technical. Um, requires tremendous concentration and skill. And um, in fact, Dad had a, a lady who was working for him. Um, <clears throat> and just, um, it's hard to describe what Irene was doing, but she wasn't warping. But and Irene, by that point, was about 82. And uh, she told me that when she and her husband worked in the, she met her husband in the dairy mill in Northampton. And when she quit to have her, their son in the late 20s or 1930 or thereabouts, she was a warper and her husband was a weaver and she was making more money than he was. And she was making 25 cents an hour. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And that's back in 1930, 1930 or 1930. so. And, you know, the remarkable thing, and this is pretty much across the board, um, Irene, Irene's son became a professor at Penn State. And 
the offspring of a lot of those women went to college because of their mother's work. Um, what happened in, it's interesting, what happened demographically in, in, among silk workers is that young women who went into it, sometimes without the benefit of even a high school diploma, or even if they did, they went into that, they were able, say if they started to work in the 20s or even the 30s in the Lehigh Valley in a mill, quit to raise their kids or you know even worked when their children were little as well um and all of dad's workers i i think a few of them might have been working because they still needed the money but they talked a lot about the fact that they really liked to come to work because they were with women their own age from their own background with a common you know common set of life's experiences and things like that and that was one of the things that they really enjoyed it was, turned into part social life it was them. it was definitely part of the social life and it was yeah. it was what they knew so yeah. i mean the 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 average age of of silk workers just sort of progressed with the century and and then they died out <laughs> so uh, what you're saying is that the silk industry in the lehigh valley runs from the 1890s? 1880s, actually. 1880s. Yeah. The huge Adelaide mill in, in Allentown um, was the first big jump of a, a, a Patterson business um, in, into Allentown. And history repeating itself. With the pig iron business disappearing and the financial situation rather difficult, the city fathers of Allentown promised a whole lot of tax breaks. They built the building and the silk and, and the silk uh, company in Patterson looked at that and said, "Here's a great opportunity um, to expand." So, and, yeah, and great so marketing on the part of uh, that's folks right. in Allentown. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and and places up in the coal regions, cities in the coal region, little towns in the coal regions. Um, Weatherly, which was basically a wide place in the road, uh, beat out a whole lot of Carbon County towns by offering um, a, a throwing company that was based in Patterson called Read and Love It. Um, tax break, they built this building. They got the Lehigh Valley Railroad to build a spur, like right to the <laughs> building site. And mm. within five years, more people worked for Read and Love It alone than actually lived in Weatherly. Wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it's, it's very, this, this concept of like the NIS in Allentown and other incentives is not a new thing. No. Yeah, mm-hmm. it continues to our day. Yeah. We mm-hmm. hear about multi-million dollar yes. uh, breaks for, yes. for companies yes. to move in. Mm-hmm. Martha, uh, what caused the the demise of silk making in the Lehigh Valley, would well, you say? Well, the, the demise was a combination of things, and it was actually a slow demise. It didn't disappear overnight, but the decline began in the 30s. Um, with the typical pattern that we see over and over and over of chasing cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these same mills then began to expand into the South, and um, the Depression didn't help a lot of things. A lot of mills here in the Valley survived by moving into producing synthetics, too. Rayon was introduced at that point. Nylon was introduced at that point. Um, and so there were still quite a few mills operating. There were still three in Catasauqua when I was a child, oh. including the one that my dad worked in. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and they produced dress goods and upholstery material and ribbons and, and synthetic dress goods, things like that. The combination of first moving south and then foreign competition, the entire apparel and textile businesses 
totally unlike what it was even 50 years ago. And a lot of it, unfortunately, is the pursuit of ever cheaper labor. In fact, several years ago, in the 20-plus years ago, I had this great opportunity to go to a three-day symposium at Smith College, which Smith in Massachusetts is in the Connecticut River Valley, and Northampton, Massachusetts, and that area were the silk thread producing area of the world, also a huge employer of women. And the symposium was organized by a woman who was a professor of women's labor at Smith. One of her speakers was this little, dear little Scotsman who had been the president of the International Silk Association at that point for about 40 years, so since the 60s. And he said that in his opinion, silk is on the way to becoming like it was when it was first brought from China, because it's going to be so expensive and so rare because the absolute beginning of silk production is so labor-intensive and pays so poorly that almost no one will do it anymore. They no longer Mm. produce raw silk in China. Raw silk basically comes out of Southeast Asia and India, and it's the very beginnings of sericulture are done by women and children who are basically making a little bit better than subsistence living. Martha, you have so many (laughs) wonderful facts at your fingertips. I thank you for coming to be on Perspectives with us here at WDIY. Our time is up. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure. I can talk about this a lot. (laughs) Yes, and listeners, if you get a chance to uh, see Martha Capwell Fox in person and see her presentation, you will love it. So thanks for tuning in this evening. I'm John Pierce, your host. Until we meet again, remember to be gentle with your neighbor.